Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Israel is no stranger to turbulent times, but it's hard to remember a period which has felt as charged and fateful as this moment. We have hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking to the streets every week to protest the judicial revolution being promoted by the Netanyahu government. At the same time, we're facing an intense wave of terror that some are calling the prelude to another Palestinian intifada. So far, it's taken the lives of 14 Israelis in the last month alone. Here in Israel, we're immersed in these news events every day, but how are they registering outside the country, especially in the United States? Later in the podcast, we'll check in with Haaretz correspondent Ben Samuels in Washington, D.C. He's been covering the reaction in Congress and the White House regarding the judicial coup, along with the surging violence. But first, I want to welcome a guest who sees what is happening from a really unique vantage point. He's an Israeli attorney who clerked in Israel's Supreme Court once upon a time, but he's lived and worked in New York City for more than 20 years. He remains deeply connected to events in Israel, and most recently he's become something of a leader in the movement against Justice Minister Yariv Levine's radical legislation for a judicial overhaul. I noticed recently, too, that he updated his LinkedIn profile to Chief of Democracy at Democrat Tech Israel, the high-tech protests against the reforms. Attorney Oz Ben Amram, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Thank you for having me. Oz, I've known you for a while, full disclosure. Uh, I know that you understand and you care deeply what is happening here in Israel, although you've lived in New York for many years. But you operate an environment over there in which many of your friends and colleagues, Jewish and not Jewish, are not exactly tuned into what's going on. When they look at the headlines and they ask you what exactly is happening over there, how do you explain it to them? First of all, if they're already asking, it's a good state. Sadly, most people here, it's just too confusing and too negative in their minds and just try to avoid it. Those who ask, I tell them fairly simply, uh, we currently have a democracy and the current regime is trying to take it away. And specifically, how do you relate it to how the U.S. system works and how the Israeli system is different and how um, they want to change the Israeli system, because uh, we've had Netanyahu on television in America kind of trying to spin things and saying, we want to take things in a more democratic direction. How do you explain it to them? I think democracy and autocracy are not the same. In Israel, it's a very unique democracy. I think we are one of the few that only have two branches of power. There is only the executive, which controls the legislative because of the, the system in Israel, the government, de facto always controls the Knesset. And the only other branch uh, that, that can curtail the, the power is the court. And if you weaken the judiciary, the government will have unlimited power and or, or non-control. Uh, and we saw in history, it's never good. In the U.S., you have the federal and the state. You've got the two houses. You've got the, the executive and the legislator. You've got courts. I mean, you, you have all those things uh, that just don't exist in Israel. I think it's mainly because of the way we started. The the British mandate really likes that there was a Natsiva Yon, uh, the, the appointee from the British mandate to run the place. That one function did both the legislative and the executive. And then there were professional judges uh, appointed by the, the British because they wanted it to be a very professional review of all the natives 
that's the history of why the Supreme Court was so strong from the very get-go. Uh, and that's what kept it a democracy all these years. So I think the differences are immensely. You saw how in the U.S. Trump wasn't able in four years to break the system uh, because there were so many checks and balances. You also saw how uh, Obama, even uh, after the, the uh, Sandy Hook massacre, couldn't make any meaningful legislation because there's so many checks and balances. You can't just decide, I, I'm done, I'm taking the country this direction or the other without getting others to agree. And I think any reform, the, the court is, system is not perfect in Israel, and, and a reform can always help. By the way, the reform that's needed has nothing to do with the proposals that uh, Levine is proposing. The main thing we need are more judges um, and more rules about how long trial can last. That's the, the biggest pain that people feel. But as for the nature of the court, since uh, they changed the law and you need to have seven of the nine to agree on the judges, so the, the, nobody has uh, control. The politicians have to work with the judges. They have to work. The court, most of the courts have been appointed by right-wing governments. When I clerked in the court over 20 years ago, it's true. The court was one-sided in terms of the, the nature. The, the judges mainly appointed themselves. But that's no longer the case for many years. And, and right now, I think they're more modern orthodox people in the court than, than they are in population, right? They're more uh, settlers in, than in population. I mean, it's, the court is very balanced. And yeah, if, you, if there's corrections, we're talking about marginal changes. I don't think the system is not working because of the way it's appointed. What is being asked here is to appoint people controlled by the government. And when you have court controlled by the government, we saw it in many other regimes, it's no uh, a mystery where it's going to go. So after only a few weeks of the demonstrations against the reforms in Tel Aviv and spreading across Israel, we began to see stories about demonstrations of Israelis living in the United States. There are an estimated million or so in the U.S. The numbers are not clear. But uh, we saw stories about them organizing their own protests over there. You've been to them, Oz. Tell me what they're like. Who are the people showing up? Are they the kinds of people that you generally see coming out to demonstrate on issues related to Israel? The Jewish community and the Israelis abroad were always very careful not to criticize Israel. Uh, and that's because of sometimes mixed feelings, sometimes not wanting to play into the hands of those who don't want the best interests of Israel, that don't have the best interests of Israel in mind. So we do see... A new group that I haven't seen. Most of the demonstrations uh, were either pro-Israel uh, or against Israel. And this one is unique because it's for Israel and against the government, right? I mean, what's happening right now in Israel is that the government is working against the interest of all Israelis. I mean, nobody, right or left, is going to be benefiting from having the end of democracy and no judiciary control. The corruption is going to hurt everyone with the uncertainty, all human rights. It's good for all, right? So this government works against the interests of Israel. So you do see people who uh, never demonstrated before, uh, Israelis. Usually Israelis don't come to demonstrations here uh, unless it's, it's uh, you know, the, the, the march for Israel or something like that. But it's more either Jewish communities or anti-Israeli uh, uh, forces. This is a unique a place where people who love and care deeply about Israel, who would like the U.S. government to put more pressure 
on Israel to do the right thing and be, be the responsible adult and help. As the ambassador said, you know, just like I talk to my kids, say, slow down. I think that the main difference, and, and I think the point for uh, some of my friends on the right are confused. Uh, they're saying, look, they, they won, right? So they have the power, let them rule. Uh, and I think the main point, there are many things that are legitimate power of an elected government to do, right? I mean, they could, they could put more money into Bibi's private home, right? I don't like it. I think it's corrupt, but it's legitimate in terms of the system. They can appoint friends of Derry to, to run the offices. I don't like it, but it's legitimate. The thing that is not legitimate is breaking the system, right? And in the uh, hospices of this reform, uh, so-called, there's really a regime change. And when you break the fabric uh, and the agreement that keeps us together, that's not a legitimate change, and you don't do it so abruptly. If you think that, if you really think that there is room for reform, it's not a reform of anything. It's a reform of the way we operate together, as we are uh, have been living together as a society all these years. Uh, you create a process uh, that involves all parties and all voices, uh, and you get people to weigh in, and not like the circus that we see now in Badat Hukar. Uh, in the in the Judiciary Committee uh, in the Knesset, where it's just, you know, people are talking, nobody's listening. There's no true exchange of ideas. There is no true discussion about the values and the consequences. So only people who understand those nuances are coming to demonstrate today. And I think our hope is to be able, and the reason I'm talking to you here, I hope that your audiences who hear it will uh, start understanding that this is the time to wake up. There won't be tomorrow if you don't show up now. We know how regimes go. We've seen it. You know, we've seen it in Turkey. We've seen it in, in Hungary and Poland. We've seen it in Russia that used to have more freedom than, than now. And, and you see what happens when you have a, an absolute power uh, without uh, any checks and balances. It always ends up to the worst of the people in that country. Like I said, I've known you for a while, Oz, and your level of engagement and involvement in what's going on in Israel, I would say, is unusually high for an Israeli who's lived in the United States for so many years. You flew in to vote in how many of the elections? Uh, all of them. All of them. Wow. My colleague Judy Maltz just reported in Haaretz that the Israel-American Council, funded primarily by Miriam Adelson, released a statement saying that the IAC, which is supposedly the representative body of Israelis uh, living in the United States, urges our brothers and sisters in Israel to avoid actions and statements that only provide ammunition for our enemies. Now, at a time of rising anti-Semitism, including anti-Zionism, we must all stand together and foster Jewish unity across all political and ideological spectrums, both in Israel and in the diaspora. She said the Israel-American Council was urging their brothers and sisters in Israel not to speak out and not to demonstrate. So I can only imagine what uh, that organization would think of Israelis in the United States doing so, right? How do you respond to those saying, hey, you chose to live in the United States, uh, sit back, don't tell the Israelis what to do with the country? So first of all, it's the same Edelson who live in the U.S. and send all this money to Bibi Israel Ayo, right? So they have no problem when it comes from the right to to serve the voice of what they're trying to to promote. And so I don't take this uh, criticism uh, seriously, but I think the main difference is whether you are informed or whether you're uninformed. If you're uninformed, I think your opinion uh, carries less weight. 
But if you know what's going on, you have a moral obligation to speak up. And, and, and people who are a la cave, uh, who fly often to Israel, I've been to Israel five times uh, last year, right? So who, who start the day with reading Haaretz or Israel Ayom or whatever it is that they read uh, and are getting the right information. I think we do have an obligation. Uh, and I, I think it's just a way for people. They just don't like to hear another voice that disagrees with them. Uh, that's the, the source of this criticism. I always get the feeling that the connection between right-wing Orthodox Israelis and right-wing Orthodox American Jews is tight and strong. They're always on the same page. I mean, obviously, the ultra-Orthodox, you know, they're in the Satmar sect together or whatever. They have a natural connection. But even with modern Orthodox, they share these worlds through their lives in the day schools and yeshivas, settlements. They have these ties. But it always feels like secular, left-leaning, progressive Israelis and their U.S. Jewish counterparts kind of live in different worlds, and it's almost impossible to get them to connect and understand each other. You kind of live at the nexus, Oz. Uh, your wife, who I also know is an American Jew. Your children grew up uh, in the United States. I'm interested in, in your thoughts on uh, bringing those two forces together and whether perhaps this current fight against the reform is uh, making some progress in, uh, in making these two communities uh, work together or cooperate. I do hope so. Uh, I think that while we share the values, we live in different realities. And, and yes, I think we don't have uh, the religion experience uh, that, that brings us together uh, on a regular basis. I think it's really important to keep in mind that while Israel, that was perceived as David in the early days of the of the state, uh, is now perceived as Goliath, right? I mean, the the fifty five years of occupation of the West Bank made it harder for the liberal Jews to identify with it, and as a result, there is definitely a recession of people who vote for liberal causes in the U.S. to be as identified with Israel, uh, and there is not an easy path for connection with the younger generation, right? You see in the colleges, being an Israeli in, in colleges in the U.S., which 30 years ago was probably a plus. Now you feel like you, you're being on the wrong side. And I think we see it, and there are many kids who just don't come to Israel anymore in their childhood, and they don't have this strong connection, uh, this intimate relationship with the country, with the place, with the people. So it's harder to get the liberal Jews, the, the left-leaning Jews in the U.S. to care enough uh, to identify and to speak up because they just, it becomes a marginal issue in their identity. And you could be Jewish without being in Israel. And many of them are like that as opposed to what it used to be uh, generations ago when most people came from religious background and, and Jerusalem and Israel was such a big part of their identity. So I think that's the challenge we're facing. Uh, when you think about the values and, it, and the other point, when you think critically, uh, it's very easy to take the anti-Israel point of view and to say this whole Zionism experiment is, is wrong, it's morally wrong. And to th if you think in black and whites without seeing the shades of gray, if you're a liberal person who believes in human rights and, and you see the suffering of the Palestinians as being controlled by Israel, it's very easy to take an anti-Israel uh, position. And that's the risk that, they, that I think uh, Edelson is talking about. We don't want to serve the people who don't want the best interests of Israel in mind uh, in the long run. Uh, so it's a nuanced thing that many people just don't have the time or information to get into. Uh, but those who do, 
uh, definitely do connect very well with what's happening. To do that, you really have to be informed. You need to look in, in not in a in a bird eye view of the conflict. You really need to understand the differences. You need to know that there are many people in Israel who think like you and feel like you, and then you could identify and work together. Uh, I want to wrap up with a question of understanding what drives you. What's your biggest fear of how this will play out and what's uh, causing you to be so active and so engaged in this fight against the judicial revolution? But because I don't want to end on too depressing a note, after that I want to uh, hear what's your biggest hope. So my biggest fear is that uh, this government is not going to stop. Uh, and knowing my friends in Israel, and by the way, it's not right or left. I have friends on the right and friends on the left who all want democracy. And they're all willing to go for war for that. They understand that democracy doesn't defend itself. Uh, and, and we are the people we've been waiting for. And they will do whatever it takes. Uh, and those are people who fought in wars and you know they are very committed to whatever it takes. And it depends on how long it will last and, and whether this government is going to stop where civil disobedience will be enough to convey the message. Uh, I'm afraid that it will really tear the society uh, in Israel apart. As it is, there are many fractions who are already getting to feel like the other is the enemy. When I walk in the U.S. and I see a Settmer person in the subway next to me, there is a sense of connection, right? We're both a minority uh, in a Christian-dominant state, country, uh, and there is a sense of we are somehow related uh, often when you see people like that in Israel, they will think of you, and often my friends will think of them as the other, the enemy, right? the person who fights for different values, uh, while the goals should be the same. So my fear is that it won't stop in time, uh, and it will go too far, and it will really tear the people, and the damage is going to be very, very hard to fix. My hope, first, I think that it's incredibly heartening to see all the people who come to those demonstrations, right? I mean, those hundreds of thousands of people, in American terms, it would be tens of millions equivalent, right? I mean, it's a huge popular movement, a, a true people from the heart who do step up, you know, everyone's a Shabbat and now it became often Mondays and now Wednesday and people who just really do understand what's at stake and are willing to sacrifice. Uh, and to take time of their lives to to be active. So I think there is a, a possibility here, and I, I won't say I'm overly optimistic, but I do to for a new contract, a new true chukah, l'Israel, to agree on the terms of uh, what is acceptable. And, and you want a reform, there is definitely need a reform. Let's talk about separation of church and state. Let's talk about many other things that uh, the, the silent majority in Israel have been woken up to realize what does lack of separation of church and state means, uh, and maybe good things will come out of it. Oz Ben Amram, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, and that's Lachalikunado. Haaretz Weekly is supported by the journal Sapir, a favorite of business leaders, policymakers, and philanthropists. From Editor-in-Chief Brett Stevens, Sapir's quarterly magazine offers thought-provoking, heterodox, and practical ideas on how to create a thriving Jewish future. Featuring essays by today's leading Jewish voices, including Anshel Pfeffer, Howard Jacobson, Dara Horn, and Anat Wilf. 
Visit superjournal.org to read the new issue on culture and thought-provoking past issues on Zionism, education, cancellation, social justice, and more. Explore urgent ideas and perhaps gain a new perspective on Jewish issues and the Jewish community. Visit sapirjournal.org. That's S-A-P-I-R-Journal.org. Coming up, what are American politicians saying about the judicial reforms and how deeply will they be involved in countering the wave of violence in Jerusalem and the West Bank? We'll talk about it all to Haaretz Washington correspondent Ben Samuels. Ben Samuels, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about the judicial uh, revolution, but let's tackle the immediate headlines first. We've had a terrible few days, really a terrible few weeks of terror attacks that have claimed the lives of 14 Israelis. As we record this, the funeral is taking place, um, the funeral for Ilan Ganelis, who kind of sounded like a poster boy, an Israeli-American for the connection between the two countries, right? You wrote about uh, his, uh, his death in the terror attack. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, this is, you know, we've all become unfortunately very accustomed to, you know, this sort of news cycle where tensions rise, innocent people die, tensions simmer, and then lather and repeat. But it really does feel as if this is sort of a new chapter and we're heading into uncharted waters. What do we see coming out of the White House regarding the terror attacks and the aftermath, the settlers rioting and burning homes, cars, and otherwise uh, destroying uh, life in the West Bank town of Hawara where the attacks took place? Well, the White House and the State Department have really kind of circled the end of March on their calendar for the past three months, you know, the beginning of the holy month of Ramadan as the real sort of flashpoint where things can really go haywire. And that's really been sort of their operating or their mode of operation of the past few months, just really making sure that things do not spiral out until then and making sure the ground is as calm as possible for when things can really get bad. But obviously, unfortunately, you know, their best laid plans have sort of been met with more terror attacks of late. Uh, the announcement from the Israeli government with uh, settlement expansion and legalizing the outpost and what happened over this past weekend in Aqaba, Jordan, really was the United States' best effort to really just sort of tone down the volume and to really begin de-escalating tensions. But ironically enough, the day that they reached these sort of agreements was the day that, you know, the two Israeli brothers were killed in a terror attack. And then that, you know, the Israeli settlers went on this giant rampage in Hawara. So it really shows just how much of the United States understands this moment is we're really sort of at an inflection point, but at the same time, their strategy is just sort of trying to keep things as calm as possible before things can really just sort of spiral even further. And even without Hawara, there was some um, controversy coming out of this Aqaba, you know, let's keep things peaceful summit because there was a disagreement on uh, what had been agreed regarding settlements, right? There was. And, you know, the United States really sort of tried setting the tone of what emerged from this by releasing this joint communique in English and detailing that the Israelis agreed to a settlement freeze and that they wouldn't legalize any further outposts and just sort of a four month window that things would just sort of stay calm. Immediately, Netanyahu said that whatever State Department spokesperson Ned Price was tweeting out wasn't actually correct, even though this is what was included in the communique. And 
it's a little bit of, you know, trying to parse the difference between, okay, does this include the settlement expansion that was already announced or does it only include settlements moving forward? And it just sort of really captures the dilemma that the Biden administration faces with dealing with this Netanyahu government that, A, they know by now that Netanyahu is just not necessarily engaging in good faith with them, but also that their strategy of engaging with Netanyahu alone as if he is the sole decider in this government is just completely misguided and that he is very much beholden to the whims of his far-right coalition partners who are very intent on settlement expansion and not to mention fomenting anti-Arab racism, which really kind of set the ground for the events that we saw in the West Bank over the weekend. Right, and we had Finance Minister uh, Betsalo Smotrich and National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, the leader of this far-right faction of the government, basically thumbing their nose at what happened in uh, Aqaba. Ben-Gvir said what happened in Jordan stays in Jordan. So what does the United States do? Does it ke- keep pretending that it's business as usual? Does it pretend that uh, that this government uh, doesn't represent what it does? Uh, how do these officials deal with the the duality of it all? Well, I think there is a sort of tendency that they don't want to feel like they're necessarily stooping to the level of, you know, the Smokerages and the Ben Gvirs of the world. But at the same time, how, you know, one has to wonder what, how much do they need to see before they understand that Smokerage and Ben Gvir are the ones making these policies and that they can't just choose to singularly engage with Netanyahu. Pivoting back to the judicial reforms, but I'm sure we're going to also reference uh, the continuing violence and what's going on. In a normal world, the judicial revolution would be considered an internal Israeli matter. It's not something for the U.S. president or the U.S. members of Congress to weigh in on or get involved in. But it kind of seems like they are. Can you tell us what's happening first with the Democrats? And um, you wrote a piece commenting quite strongly on what you called Chuck Schumer's strange embrace of Benjamin Netanyahu. What exactly happened there? Well, like you mentioned, that kind of was the approach emerging from Washington when the Netanyahu coalition first took over. You know, they viewed this judicial reform as strictly a domestic matter and that they were going to engage with policy points that would endanger a potential two-state solution. So settlement expansion, Temple Mount status quo, you know, the things that we're all accustomed to hearing being the matters that the Biden administration really cares about. But, you know, as outrage within Israel really started to take hold and these mass protest movements started to emerge and high-tech companies started warning that they would flee Israel and the leading economists of the world and the leading democratic thinkers of the world really started publicly making clear what was really at stake, you know, I feel like the Biden administration had really no choice but to start engaging in it. And Jake Sullivan visited and he raised it behind closed doors and it wasn't included in the White House readout. And then Secretary Blinken came and then he obviously made his very, you know, kind of groundbreaking, frankly, remarks about what would be at stake if Israel ceased becoming a democracy and how democracy was at the bedrock of the U.S.-Israel bipartisan relationship. And then President Biden, you know, made his statement to Thomas Friedman of The New York Times. And that really opened the floodgates for what was sort of emerging and being whispered behind closed doors. And once President Biden went on record talking about the importance of this, this really empowered Democratic members of Congress to sort of follow his lead and publicly say what they had been saying behind the scenes for weeks, if not months. So, you know, Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin went on record. Uh, Jamie Raskin, who's, you know, sort of the face of the defense of democracy, made really strong comments equating the Israeli protesters to those 
on the front lines in Iran and Ukraine, you know, defending democracy against global authoritarianism. You know, over two dozen lawmakers have really not held back in terms of how strongly they view this as a threat to the U.S.-Israel relationship and how this could endanger bipartisan support for Israel and how if Israel ceases to be a democracy, you know, it's a very slippery slope for what this means. So, you know, it's really, you know, just like we said, we're in uncharted waters before, we're really in uncharted waters here where it really is unclear what the future would hold if this goes ahead as planned. And why did you see Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer's behavior as kind of an outlier and being unusual? Well, Senator Schumer led a congressional delegation when the Senate was in recess and, you know, one of his member, one of the senators on his delegation, Peter Welch, told Hartz that, you know, he was extremely worried about, he was one of the first people, frankly, to say that he was extremely worried about the state of democracy in Israel and what's at stake. So there's this groundswell that's really emerging of criticism of Israel. And then Senator Schumer just sort of goes and puts his arm around Netanyahu and gives a big smile and says, you know, we've been friends for decades and the official statement coming from Schumer's office talked about how they talked about Iran and the Abraham Accords. And it's frankly just completely disconnected with the reality on the ground and disconnected with the tone that's emerging from his caucus. So it was just peculiar, to say the very least, that Senator Schumer would not use his platform to try to influence Netanyahu the same way that the Biden administration and that other key Democrats in Congress, both in the Senate and the House, as well as rank and file members of the Senate and the House, are really trying to push Netanyahu. Interesting. Do you think that's because of his constituents, because he's somehow mired in the past, or you have no idea why? It's hard to say. I mean, he is who he is. You know, his record has been very consistent over the pa- over the several decades that he's been in the Senate. And, you know, just sort of like Joe Biden is sort of a creature of a different era. I think you can say the same for Senator Schumer. Roots his support for Israel and his Judaism. So on one hand, it's the same as President Biden, but it goes even a little deeper than that, where it really is truly personal for Senator Schumer. Um, what about the other side of the aisle, the GOP? Are any of the Republicans speaking out, supporting the Netanyahu government's reforms, otherwise signaling support for the judicial revolution? Or are they uh, sort of staying under the radar? Uh, they're emerging a little bit in terms of their support. So while Senate was in recess, alongside Senator Schumer's delegation, uh, several leading Republican senators came to Israel as well. And it was interesting enough, they came to attend a conference organized by the Tikva Fund, which is one of the you know leading organizations that is considered to be behind this judicial reform. So just by their presence alone at the Tikva Fund, they're sort of alluding to their support for these quote-unquote reforms. And, you know, what you're starting to see from Republicans that when they are asked about it is that, you know, they believe that this won't lead to Israel ceasing to be a democracy and that the U.S.-Israel relationship is strong enough that it can indeed, you know, sort of survive whatever is at stake. Have we heard anything from the potential uh, Republican presidential candidates, uh, Pompeo, Nikki Haley, who announced, et cetera, or it's too early to uh, to see what they're doing? They've been uh, visiting Israel a lot, I've noticed. They haven't necessarily been commenting on this, but, you know, I think what has emerged in terms of the Republican Party is that it is sort of a race to see who can be the most affirmative in their support for Israel. So that's really what you're starting to see emerge from the early 2024 20, Republican contenders. 
Finally, what about the Jewish world? You've been covering the response of the Jewish organizations both to the violence, the Hawara attacks, in which you said there are some uh, organizations who spoke out against it who don't generally criticize Israel in the security realm, but also um, how are pro-Israel lobbies like APAC and the rest of the Jewish organizations speaking out, participating or not participating in the fight against the uh, judicial revolution? So save APAC, you know, APAC is sort of rooting their comments in the fact that the debate in Israel is in fact, evidence of a vibrant democracy. So beyond them, you know, what you're really seeing from the vast, vast, vast majority of the U.S. Jewish establishment is that they have sort of used President Herzog's call for compromise as their window to really engage in this. And rather than, you know, come out and directly criticize Netanyahu, which granted some are doing, such as, you know, the reform movement in J Street, you know, the rest of the and Jewish Democratic Council for America, I should add, which is rare in its own right, but what you're really seeing is the Jewish establishment say that things need to slow down, that both sides need to come to the table and try to reach a compromise. But in terms of Hawa'a, what really is interesting is that the first two organizations to really come out and say this is a complete violation of what they stand for are the Orthodox Union and the Rabbinical Assembly, which is the conservative movement's uh, rabbinical arm. And just the fact that these two major denominational groups are really leading the charge on this and, you know, rooting it in their own Judaism just really shows just how unique of a moment we're at and how any prognostications of what the future may hold are just, you know, no one can say what tomorrow is going to bring. So therefore, you just canceled my ability to ask you what tomorrow is going to bring, right, Ben? <laughs> well... Many smarter people than I have tried saying that, and they have been proven wrong, so I am just going to bite my tongue. Okay, with that bitten tongue, we'll wrap things up. Ben Samuels, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Oz Ben Amram and Ben Samuels, and to my producer, Dan Brumer, and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.